You are listening to Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist Humanist Podcast. My name is Brendan Cooney. And I'm Andrew Kleiman. On today's episode, we talk with Laszlo Menarfi, a student in Ireland, about the dangers of Stalinism or tankyism uh, amongst the student movement today. To hear more episodes of Radio Free Humanity, to read more about the issues discussed, or to join in the conversation, please visit marxisthumanistinitiative.org. You can also make a donation to the podcast there on the website. While our podcast is hosted by MHI, the views expressed by the co-hosts and guests of Radio Free Humanity are their own. They do not necessarily reflect the views and positions of MHI. In just a moment, we're going to be discussing tankies with Laszlo Menarfi. But first, as we do in every episode, Andrew and I are going to take a few minutes to talk about some current events. We're recording this current event section on Friday, August 20th. And we're going to be talking about a piece in Salon from August 12th by Amanda Marcotte. The piece is called, It's Okay to Blame the Unvaccinated, They Are Robbing the Rest of Us of Our Freedoms. You know, Andrew, there have been a lot of pieces in the meeting in the past week or two written by vaccinated people expressing their frustration and anger uh, over the rise of the Delta variant and restrictions reimposed on our lives and all the stress of worrying about COVID coming back after we all had this sense of, you know, seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. But you, it was your idea to, to do this Marcotte piece. Was there something about this that you found particularly insightful? Yes. I mean, people are really angry, but, you know, it's not always clear to people why they're angry. And what you know, a lot of the time happens is you get this phony dichotomy between freedom and social responsibility. Well, you know, yeah, there's freedom, but that has to be balanced against blah, blah, blah. She, as far as I'm concerned, hits the nail on the head. They are robbing the rest of us of our freedoms. You know, she says a bunch of things. You know, she's mad and so forth, and lots of us are mad. But she gets at the issue that the so-called, you know, love of freedom coming from the governors of Florida and Texas and, you know, all the rest of the right wing, Rand Paul, this is, you know, not freedom. It's, it's not freedom for the rest of us. It's robbing the rest of us of our freedoms. That, and that's, ex that's exactly right, as far as I'm concerned. And so what I think is that we should not give an inch when we hear this garbage about, you know, freedom and, and so forth. Yeah, you, you have the freedom not to get vaccinated. That doesn't mean you have the freedom to go out in crowded areas and, and infect other people with potentially very, very deadly disease. That's robbing the rest of us of our freedom. You know, even if we, we don't get it, we're deathly afraid all the time. And Yeah, well, I mean, and it's like a concept of freedom that is so deprived of any real content. It's just like the freedom to be as pathologically reckless and um, dangerous without any consequences, which I don't think is a, a notion of freedom that withstands much serious scrutiny. We shouldn't be surprised. I mean, the, the fascist right and the authoritarian right in this country have been developing this very abstract and reckless concept of freedom for a while. I mean, this is sort of the same notion behind gun rights in our country. While the rest of us are like scared shitless about gun violence, you have these crazy Republicans talking about, you know, where the people are taking away their freedom to buy unlimited amounts of automatic weapons or the freedom of like crazy people to own limitless stores of, of weapons while the rest of us have to worry all the time about mass shootings and, and street violence. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And Marcotte's column reminded me of something that Marx wrote, was published on his 24th birthday. I, th I think it a little, adds a little to the discussion because it goes to the issue of people talking about freedom and you know, in a sense, yeah, they're for freedom. They're for their own freedom. And this is the issue that Marx got at. He, he wrote an, uh, an essay or several essays actually on the freedom of the press. This was in uh, 1842. And he, he wrote, Freedom is so much the essence of man that even its opponents implement it while combating its reality. They want to appropriate for themselves as a most precious ornament what they have rejected as an ornament of human nature. No man combats freedom. At most, he combats the freedom of others. Hence, every kind of freedom has always existed, 
only at one time as a special privilege, at another as a universal right. So that's the issue. Nobody's against their own freedom, their own freedom to oppress other people, you know, to keep us scared, to infect us, and so forth. I mean, that, that, that's a given. So to talk about freedom under those circumstances is, is, is garbage. We all know that we want to be able to do whatever we want to do. A realistic notion of freedom when we talk about a human society is a universal freedom. And those who are claiming a special privilege against others and a freedom for them but not for others, they are opponents of freedom. And Marx, he, was, he published this on his 24th birthday. You know, he, he realized this way back when. I think that this, you know, actually adds to what Amanda Marcotte was saying. So we've got to say that that notion of freedom is just not viable because what freedom really is is a universal uh, issue. Now, that's a great quote by Marx that kind of sums the whole problem up, I think. Yeah, he was a pretty sharp dude. <laughs> yeah. He really was, you know. <laughs> 20, 24 years old, you said, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. May fifth, uh, eighteen forty-two. Wow. I mean, one of the most frustrating things about this, even, is that the the freedom that the unvaccinated are claiming for themselves is so pathetic and meaningless, and they're putting everyone else's lives at risk and mental health at risk for the right to like send their kid to school without a mask in the middle of uh, a COVID spike or to not get vaccinated when the vaccines are not dangerous at all. And most of these people are vaccinated for everything else that's required to go to schools or be part of society. You know, these people all, have, all these people have taken the polio vaccine and the, their TB shots and all, you know, chickenpox vaccine. And most schools require all those things before you can go to a school. I mean, some of these people doing the, making all the noise are people themselves who have gotten the COVID vaccine, like the governor of Texas, Greg yeah. Abbott. He, he's right. vaccinated. Right. But he's pursuing this concept of freedom, which is keeping other people from getting vaccinated for his own political purpose. So the whole thing is so cynical, manipulative, and whatever this concept of freedom they're protecting is completely vapid and worthless, even for themselves. It doesn't mean anything. It's completely symbolic. Right. And, and there, are financial, there are financial considerations going on as well. Uh, one of these governors, either Abbott or Costello, uh, DeSantis, excuse me, is, is heavily involved with the, the person who's got the money behind Regeneron, you know, the, the COVID cocktail. So they're, they're pushing, well, you know, we don't need the vaccinations, you know, you get COVID, you, you, you take this miracle drug. So th there's that as well. But I was very interested, you know, you have the right to send your kids. What about the right of your kids not to get COVID? I mean, these people really, they're claiming all these rights. I mean, we do have laws and regulations that say so-and-so should not have custody of these children despite whatever happened at birth because, you know, they're, they're not competent to be a guardian of, of, of kids. You know, so what about the rights of their kids? Not to mention other people's kids. I really think that the political leadership in our country did not foresee how big this problem was going to be and how it was going to kind of spiral out of our control. And we're very belatedly coming to the realization that we need mandates. We need to use force to get these people to get vaccinated and to wear masks. We're not going to convince these people to do it. Right. Although I would not say a mandate is force. I mean, nobody is forcing somebody to go to the grocery store. Nobody is forcing anybody to go to a concert. Nobody is forcing anybody onto an airplane. Okay. For yourself, you have the right not to be vaccinated. That's not in contention. The issue is whether you should be allowed to infect other people. Right. We're, be we're belatedly coming to realization we can't just like educate and patiently wait for people to make the right decision. There has to be requirements for employment. It it's been so slow for municipalities to figure out how to implement vaccine mandates for employees, you know, public employees, because they have to like, you know, go through this whole process of getting the, the unions on board and everything. And it takes a while. And then, of course, you know, you have to get a vaccine and then you have to wait two weeks to get your other vaccine and wait two more weeks to be fully vaccinated. So it's a whole thing. And they could they should they could have been doing this months ago and they just didn't foresee how how hard it was going to be to get people to agree to get these vaccines. So we lost we lost a lot of time because people thought there was this assumption that everyone was just going to want to get the vaccine. And now we have a glut of vaccines and people aren't taking them. 
Uh, I mean, I think people started to realize that there was a problem uh, when we began to get pushback on social distancing and masking a couple months in, into into the pandemic. The, the Trumpites beating the drums and so forth at that point. I, th- I think what happened is people saw who was getting killed, who was getting infected. It was black people, it was brown people, it was immigrants, and, you know, it wasn't the white people, especially in rural areas. And also, you know, what happened is the, the liberal media in particular and the, the public health people said, look, you know, we're all in this together. So that became a political issue and it scared the, the, the shit out of people. You know, that's the last thing they want to hear is we're all in this together. The, you know, the, the far right, the, the, the Trumpite base and, and so forth. So, I mean, I, I think it was probably well expected by the time the, the vaccines rolled out that there was going to be a problem. But the, the problem is, is, is what can you do? You know, there are limits to what the governments can do, but but people are fighting back. But it's just ridiculous that it's not until now that, like, the city of Philadelphia has figured out they need to have a vaccine mandate for all public employees. And you're just starting to see public school districts try to figure out if they can require vaccines of other teachers. Like, they could, they should have been doing this back in the spring. It's political resistance. It's, 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 I don't think it's stupidity. I think it's political resistance that they're worried about. I mean, people don't want to have to engage with a, an intransigent, crazy, but very determined minority, which has shown that it's, you know, willing to uh, overthrow the government and, and, and so, so forth. I mean, that's what's going on. But people are fighting back and people are fighting back. I'm, I'm really heartened to see people in, in Florida fight back because because there you've got the governor say there can't be any mask mandates anywhere in the state despite what the local school boards say no mask ma- mandates in any schools in Florida public schools and at this point there are six or seven counties that have said screw you we're going to do it anyway so that's that's direct violation of what the governor supposedly has a right to do it's like civil disobedience and seven counties the the thing though is these seven counties have about close to a million students in them altogether a lot of them are huge right so i mean you know there's there's i don't know 55 56 uh, public uh, 56 million public school students in the whole united states it, just in these places that are defying DeSantis, it's close to a million. Well, we are over time for this current events section, so we're going to have to stop there. But up next, our conversation with Laszlo Monarfi about tankies. On today's Radio Free Humanity, we welcome Laszlo Monarfi to talk about the menace of tankyism or neo-Stalinism today, especially in the youth movement and in Irish politics. We're going to be talking about a piece that Laszlo recently authored called To Overthrow the Capitalism of Today, We Must First Overthrow the Communism of the Past. The piece is published in With Sober Senses, the online publication of MHI, and we will link to it in the podcast description. The piece is a critique of neo-Stalinist or tanky influences amongst the Irish left and the youth movement in Ireland. Laszlo is a student at the Trinity College of Dublin, where he studies poli-sci, philosophy, sociology, and economics, and he's involved in the student movement there. Laszlo studies in Dublin, but he's actually a Hungarian who grew up in Brussels. So, Laszlo, welcome to the podcast. Welcome, Laszlo. I'm excited to be here. Also joining us today, uh, once again, is Anja Clard, Organizational Secretary of Marxist Humanist Initiative, no stranger to the podcast, and has been on our podcast uh, as a contributor many times before, and has contributed a lot to uh, tracking and discussing the rise of tankyism amongst the youth today. Hi, everybody. Laszlo, um, your article is about the situation in the left today, uh, and you call on revolutionaries to uh, repudiate a wave of tanky or Stalinist thought that dominates certain leftist circles. You say that this is a, a wave of tankyism that's worrying and it, that it's becoming more intense. But your article is, is surprising in a kind of way, although you are talking about the situation today, the article begins by talking about the past. The 1956 uh, uprising against Stalinism in Hungary, your, your home country, uh, and then the similar attempt in Czechoslovakia 12 years later uh, to create what Dubček called socialism with a human face. 
Both the revolts were crushed by uh, Russian tanks, which is the origin of the name tankyism. So I'm just wondering, why did you decide to begin an article that's about the situation today by returning to the past? Well, you know, they say that history repeats itself or that at least it rhymes. I started with the past as it shows the possibility of a world that we want to create, our movement. And it sort of puts that in opposition with the crushing ideas of Stalinism, highlights its dangers for the hopes of, of today. It's also because in our movement, you can call that the Marxist or the leftist or the socialist, whatever movement, um, the legacy of the past is very strong. So like the interpretation of historical events can really uh, make or break tendencies. So this means that many organizations, you know, they, they have these party lines and they can be stuck in a specific, let's say, wrong interpretation of the past. So they can basically be stuck in the past. They don't face what happened um, in the 20th century. And we do need to confront the crimes of the past, you know, the mistakes that were made, flawed ideas. So that's sort of why it's sort of like a, a wake up call. I would say, at the beginning of, of the article. And in fact, you know, many organizations are, their very existence is actually rooted in not confronting historical realities. And I am, I am obviously mostly referring to, to the Stalinists here, but as obviously Trotskyist parties also have, have a certain interpretation of the Bolsheviks and of the degeneration of the Russian Revolution, etc. So it's it's those two reasons are basically uh, why I started this article by referring to what happened in the past. Laszlo, it seems incredible that a hundred years after the Russian Revolution, and almost as many uh, since it began to turn into its opposite, as uh, as Marxist humanists put it and the glorious bursts of creativity and implementation of socialist ideas was, was just smashed to smithereens. So why is the left still following it, in your opinion? I know you can't answer the whole question, but why does this have so much draw for youth today? Is it just because they had a revolution briefly? Or is there something more ingrained in the ideas that is attractive to youth? But yeah, I, 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 do, I do agree with you that it's, it's, it is in fact very, very sad that instead of cherishing moments of hopeful humanity like the 1956 revolution or the six-state uh, Prague Spring, that instead we, we follow these very, very perverted interpretations of history, I think that there are two reasons again the first one is that i i do believe you know after like the collapse of the eastern bloc and the soviet union these um stalinist organizations they you know, marxist leninists as we like to call them or they like to call themselves they became very small many turned to different directions there were many splits but these organizations, they, they still, you know, they remained, they stayed. And then with the internet and with the new generation, these organizations start growing. The youth can sort of latch on to these small bulwarks of the past, so to say, and then actually make it popular again. The internet definitely plays a big role. And, and obviously, it, it's very attractive for many people to offer these very easy solutions because Stalinism is easy, it's dogmatic, it, it doesn't sort of acknowledge the complexities of the world and of different interpretations and of different ideas. Uh, so it offers an explanation and an explanation is almost like religious-like, I would say. And that is that is indeed very attractive because it's a way to explain the injustices of the world. So there's obviously other reasons too, but those are the sort of two big trends that I would identify. You say in your article that, quote, Marxism has been co-opted by specific power structures that resist the momentum of history and that have co-opted the name of Marx. This hurts the moral, political, and scientific integrity of Marxism, not to mention the ability for activists to organize. It is unacceptable and we must push back. How exactly does resurgent tankyism hurt 
the moral, political, and scientific integrity of Marxism? And why do you contend that, the, that this isn't some abstract ideological dispute, but that instead the tanky resurgence hinders activists' ability to organize? The first part of, of your question is, I, I listed these three things, the moral, political, and scientific integrity of Marxism. Well, I think that Marx and Engels' writing, and obviously also anarchist theorists, etc., their, their writings about the world that workers or the people to create, that was pretty clear. Marx, in my interpretation, he was a libertarian Marxist. He was very keen on democracy, and he insisted that the new system will actually liberate the human spirit. And and he also developed sort of scientific-ish theories around this, uh, which, which promoted these values, right? The reason why Stalinism and these sort of authoritarian strains of Marxism, the, the sort of perversions of Marxism, the reason why they hurt this integrity is because they disregard all these goals. I mean, Stalinist sort of, or Marxist-Stalinist sort of, view socialism as an end in itself, in a very utilitarian way, without really having regards for democracy, human life, the spirit of liberation, because they, rather than seeing it as just a means to liberate humanity, they see it as, as I said, as an end in itself. And, you know, even Leninism is a stretch, you know, from, from what real Marxism is, the vanguard theory, etc. But the second question, why this isn't just some abstract ideological dispute, I can only speak from experience that, that, you know, other people have told me. For example, activists who are involved in the struggle against China or activists who are for the independence of Taiwan or Hong Kong or try to raise awareness about the Uyghur genocide, they are being attacked in online and offline spaces because China is sort of, in, in Stalinist culture, it's a thing to be praised in tanky culture. Um, I know someone who's actually a Chinese exile or a Chinese dissident, so he's on government watch lists. He is actually a very active campaigner, and he told me the story of how tankies wanted to shut him down or, or they make his life difficult and it's not that they come there and they have debates they don't debate the tankies they go and they attack in swarms you know they they attack you and they call you a cia agent or a fascist and this is happening today which is an issue It, it also obviously hinders the ability for libertarian marxists and anarchist organizations to actually you know assert themselves and organize i mean let's say if we had a, a person who was a who was a Marxist humanist at Trinity, let's say, and they wanted to set up an organization. The problem that they would face is that the tankies are very, very insistent on on calling themselves actual Marxists, quote unquote, and grounded in what they call quote unquote science, right? So they insist on the name of Marx of Marxism. Um, so they appropriate these terms. And obviously other organizations, you would come in and, and you'd see that, that what students see is that there's already a Marxist organization and you wouldn't be really likely to call yourself Marxist because there is already competition for that specific phrase, right? So this does mean a co-optation of Marxism and it does mean that it's a very shameful tarnishing of the life's work of, of many socialist thinkers. You know, you're talking about the... It's like practical difficulty of like organizing when there are these people with very reactionary ideas in the movement, right? But you're also saying that you're demeaning, destroying like the scientific integrity of Marxism, which I think is an important point because, you know, Marxism isn't just like a philosophy of how to organize and build cadre and win revolutions, right? It's a philosophy of liberation, like you said, and a a whole body of work trying to understand the nature of the capitalist mode of production and the the world we live in, right? So when you read Marx, you see someone like seriously grappling with all the intellectual currents of his time and all of the sort of empirical data of the society that he's living in and trying to make sense of it and making sure in a very scholarly way, making sure that, that what he is writing is is really accurate 
and academically sound. Yeah, so that that is so that is such an opposite approach to truth seeking than contemporary Tinkyism, which is sort of this post-truth politics, which only makes sense if you, you can tolerate an extreme amount of cognitive dissonance where you just block out or interpret like recent history to be uh, com- completely the opposite of what actually happened. You know, it's like, like your example of people like attacking a Chinese dissident. I mean, the amount of like cognitive distance that one has to live with to, to do something like that is, is pretty, really extreme or to even carry around a Stalin banner. I mean, you, you'd have to like have never read a book about Stalin and just read like a lot of post-truth crap on the Internet to, to carry around Stalin pictures. So that sort of approach to truth is completely opposite than the than the sort of deeply responsible way of approaching philosophy that Marx was involved in. It's like polar opposite approaches to philosophy. I wrote this article because I thought that our movement needs to fight back against this post-truth trend. And the, an article is a great way to start a debate. And debate is really key here. Because one thing that is absolutely missing from all these organizations and parties or reading groups, or whatever, the Stalinist versions, I mean, it is debate and sort of what um, Rosa Luxemburg called political life, sociopolitical life, quote-unquote, right? It, it's actually, it's, it's missing from many uh, strains of Marxism. So it, it's this idea that you have the Stalinists, for example, and these organizations, they follow a party line, from which you can't go against it, all their reading groups, they have an allowed range of opinion, right? You know, if you if you say that you don't like Vanguard theory or that you think Trotsky was right in his theory of permanent revolution or whatever, you will be rebuked by the chair of the reading group. So that sort of makes the whole movement, it makes them sort of dead and lifeless, which is what you call post-truth. So it's not really about arguments anymore. It sort of dissolves into this idea that we follow dogmatically (laughs) certain interpretations. Uh, So the reason I wrote this article is because I think we need to restore and catalyze debate rather than being stuck in the past in this way. In an organization, there should be place for fun, exploration, experimentation, debate in terms of determining how to build socialism for the 21st century. What I would like to see, you know, it's not like idolizing figures like Stalin at all, but even I I don't want to see people idolizing figures like Lenin or Trotsky. Reading groups should promote new ways of thinking, new movements, new tendencies. And, you know, you can say Lenin was obviously a major figure, but we need independent and critical thought, right? If there would be debate in these organizations, Stalinism wouldn't exist at all. Um, I realize I did say I blame the whole movement, which is, it's a big thing to say, but I don't think it's only limited to, to Stalinists, to be honest. What I, what I would compare it to is I would prefer the Comintern of 1919 rather than that of 1924 by the time when Bolshevization was complete. I, I, I really think we need independent thought, we need different philosophies, we need debate, if that makes sense. To me, it makes a lot of sense, and I'm sure to, to Brendan and to, to Anne, uh, it makes a lot of sense. As you say, it, the problem is not limited to tankies and the Stalinists, or even like the Trotskyists. There is a general sense on the left that, and I'm speaking mostly about the United States, where I have most of my personal experience, there's a sense that debate and disagreement is divisive, term sectarian gets thrown around a lot and kind of the reigning idea is we're all really on the same side we're all really all for the same things and what we have to do is build a movement we need unity and anything that goes against that unity is divisive and harmful and therefore when you keep harping on this issue of the the tankies and so forth you're throwing people out of the club 
to use a term of by Rick Wolf. And, you know, I don't want to judge who's in the club, who's not in the club. You know, we need everybody. We should, uh, you know, appreciate everybody. And, you know, you got your ideas and they got their ideas. But as, hey, David Graeber, who was an anarchist, said, you know, you got your ideas, uh, the other person's got their ideas. That's your own business. You know, what the movement needs to do is to focus on action. So, I mean, e- even even so-called libertarian anarchists uh, like Graeber subscribe to this idea that we should not be working through contradictions with, within the movement. We should let them sit there for the sake of unity. I mean, my own view is that kind of unity is very superficial and it breaks down, you know, <laughs> at the first moment of real conflict. But we're dealing with a very, very big problem there. Have you experienced this kind of pushback when, when you talk about ideas and debate and so forth? Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Even when you would speak with a, with a leftist about the tank issue, they internally they they condemn it but nobody would be actually willing to stand up and start publicly fighting against stalinism my question was did you also ask me about whether i experienced an a general aversion to debate because i also experienced that i went to a few trotsky's reading groups which you know they did it's a good reading group and it was i had fun and i met many people there involved in the movement but they would ask you know when did and how did the russian revolution degenerate and you would say well by 1921 which is my opinion probably the working class had lost almost all of its political power but then the, the reading group which was initiated by a certain tendency one of the big tendencies that has branches in many places they would have representatives there who would actually say well actually you know i think It was only when Stalin came to power much later. So the purpose of the reading group wasn't to read and debate, but it was to actually um, recruit people to, to follow a certain party line. So yes, there is a general aversion to to debate and, and, and to, to all those things. There's a general, if, if you join a, an organization, you have to you follow this this line, which obviously all organizations have lines, and that's not to say that they shouldn't, because that's what an organization is for. But if in a reading group you have a line, maybe that's an issue. I don't want, in my reading groups, I would want actual debate. Laszlo, when we first spoke to you a couple months ago, you told us you were quite shocked when you got to Dublin at the political tenor of the university that There were so many tankies around. You you were not expecting the old Marxist quote unquote to be tankies. I wonder if your experiences or your knowledge of Belgium or Hungary, for that matter, in the West of Europe, you found these same or heard about the same tendencies towards tankyism. Yeah, in in Belgium there is in the UK in in the US. But I personally, I didn't see it in the UK or the US. Uh, but for example, I know even if, if you speak to a person, a friend of mine, who isn't in, that politically active, even he in Belgium, who studies in Belgium, even he knows this archetype of this 20-year-old student who comes up to you and he has a hammer and sickle badge and he starts praising Stalin. Even he knows that archetype. So the fact that he knows and he might think, he doesn't because obviously I've spoken to him, but that he might think that that's Marxism, that is a problem. The fact that if you speak to students, you know, some of them will have had, even non-politically active students, will have had experience with Stalinists and they were obviously shocked or, you know, they, they thought it was hilarious that Stalinists exist. You've talked about the general post-truth tanky aesthetic that inspired you to write this article, but were there any, like, specific events or behaviors that were the instigators for wanting to write this article? But here's the things that sort of shocked me. Well, someone argued that the 1956 revolution was a fascist CIA coup, straight straight up like that. 
So no, no nuance. And that is obviously a, a blatant denial of academic consensus. It's, you know, obviously academics, some of them have a liberal bias, but it is absolutely anti-truth to claim that the 1956 revolution in Hungary was anything more than an uprising against the Stalinist rule. Someone said the kulaks deserved worse. It's a half as a joke, I hope. When they supported Lukashenko, so they immediately supported Belarusia, for example, when they grounded the plane illegally, they, they, they clearly have no support for, for, for liberal rights like freedom of speech or or right to a fair trial. You know, they're liberal human rights are very important, except the right to private property. <laughs> but uh, then there was one that's absolutely absurd. So someone said actually quite a senior figure in the in, in one of the Marxist-Leninist organizations. <laughs> he said that East Germany was very democratic because the Stasi tracked everyone's habits obsessively. They tracked habits like coffee consumption. <laughs> And Everyone the, equally. Yes, and wait, and here's the thing. The data would be used to make policy decisions. Therefore, East Germany was democratic. So it's 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 quite a that's that's absurd obviously and it's it's shocking. Gulag jokes are are terrible. That's another thing. Gulag jokes so I don't want to make any direct comparisons between Nazism and Stalinism, but you can't joke about the murder and the terror and families destroyed and you can't joke about that because it's 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 very real and it happened and it's very hurtful for many people so when you see jokes like stalin should have killed more people or when somebody shares their own testimony like hey my family was prosecuted and my family members died they were tortured like you know in in hungary for example my family members also had experiences with this and then you have some random tanky being on twitter they say something like good they deserved it that is terrible and why is no one calling them out on that uh, andrew you said in your quote i believe that there is the the soft stalinist or the people who just support this silently this is unacceptable I mean, it should be condemned. So that's the reason. And obviously the, the, the very annoying thing is when there's pro-Stalinist individuals who simply refuse to condemn Stalin in front of people who are interested in Marxism. So it's like they would try to, be, to try to learn about Marxism and they would come up with, with the very natural question, you know, well, what about Stalin? Was that real socialism? Was that real communism? And they would straight up be like, you know, Stalin was great and they don't condemn the the, the crimes of the past. Hey, we're going to return to this conversation in just a moment. But first, as we do in every episode, we're going to take just a few minutes to hear from Angie Clard, Organizational Secretary of Marxist Humanist Initiative, the organization which sponsors this podcast. Marxist Humanist Initiative, or MHI, aims to contribute to the transformation of this capitalist world by projecting, developing, and concretizing the philosophy of Karl Marx and its further development in the Marxist humanism articulated by Raya Donayevskaya. The ongoing COVID-19 pandemic and today's many other social, political, and economic crises make this a moment to engage people in discussion of these ideas. In the U.S., we are faced with the threat of Trumpism triumphing an all-out authoritarianism extinguishing our right to carry on these discussions. Yet at the same moment, the multiracial movement for black lives has spread to every corner of the country and the world, launching a flood of activism and new ideas that deepen the concept of freedom. MHI is dedicated to the task of proving theoretically that an alternative to capitalism is possible. We are distinguished by our economic analyses in which we do not merely assert but demonstrate that the only opposite to the current world economic system is its abolition and replacement with one not based on the production of, quote, value, close quote. Because capitalism cannot be fundamentally reformed, attempts to reform it lead to an intensification of state capitalism, not to socialism. We are not a political party, nor are we trying to lead the masses who will form their own organization and whose emancipation must be their own act. 
But we have seen that spontaneous actions alone are insufficient to usher in a new society. We seek a new unity of philosophy and organization in which mass movements striving for freedom lay hold of Marx's philosophy of revolution and recreate society on its basis. Our ideas and actions, as well as our structure and rules, are guided by the interests of working people and freedom movements of people of color, LGBTQ people, other minorities, women, youth, and all those around the world who are struggling for self-determination in order to freely develop their own human natures. We have no interests separate and apart from theirs. To this end, we open our website to the widest possible dialogue with people around the world we intend to practice as well as espouse a two-way road between our organization and people outside it as essential to developing a single dialectic in the relationship of theory to practice and as the way to assure the survival of Marxist humanism. Please join us. Well, going back to your discussion about different reading groups you've been involved in, what exactly do tankies read? One of the reasons I ask is because we had a comment on the MHI website in response to a previous piece about tankyism, and the commenter said that, that he thought that these tankies were just naive young people, as he called them, and he said, quote, that they were a young, untested movement that is, of course, filling the huge intellectual vacuum with all sorts of nonsense, end quote, um, sort of implying that they don't really understand tangy ideas or Stalinist ideas, just sort of like picking up the iconography of past revolutions? I disagree. They actually do read. This is an actual resurgence of Marxism-Leninism. This is filling an intellectual vacuum with theories that were developed by 20th century Stalinists. For example, they do read Lenin, Marx, Stalin, they might even read Trotsky, and when I asked them, so what is the reason for you being a Stalinist, they can actually give theoretical justification, right? So they can say, well, I do think that the US, that, that we need to support any and every regime against the US. They do read and they have theories and that is why this is an actual resurgence of tankism rather than just a bunch of young people going around and talking nonsense. But obviously that these are, let's say, naive young people. But it's, it's not just a superficial picking up of random ideas, it is an actual resurgence. Yeah, I mean, to go back to the, the point about the, the soft Stalinism or the, the apologists or the, the, the people who, like you said, they might say, you know, this is not what I think, but they won't condemn it. To me, these people are much more dangerous than the actual tankies because they provide the cover for tankyism. They enable it to thrive instead of being isolated and marginalized and because these people are much more numerous than the the, the hardcore tankies they create a, in a, a big environment a big space for those kinds of people for for them to operate in so it seems i guess harder to condemn them but I, I, I think it's it, we, we need to focus as much of, of our efforts or much of our thinking on these soft Stalinists as, as the more ludicrous, hardline people, because in, in fact, they, they, they do more damage. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. They also give the illusion that somehow as the Stalinists are a legitimate part of our movement because like here's here's the thing like you have a minority who are being tolerated by many people it would be looked down upon to sort of challenge the way things are to sort of speak out against this because th the biggest issue here is really that if our movement doesn't actually intervene then people will just think we are the same and that we view them as quote-unquote comrades, <laughs> right? Because a leftist who is a, is a Trotskyist or a leftist who is a libertarian Marxist, they obviously know that what the Stalinists are saying is, is bullshit, right? They know that. But what about someone who doesn't know anything about uh, Marxism and they want to learn and they see from afar, from a distance, oh, all these Trotskyists and all the anarchists and the leftists that they don't call out 
to Stalinist. So it might be just that that is also valid interpretation, and that's dangerous. Right, and basically the the people will say, well, you know, the mistakes were made, and it's not what I want, or I think differently. But people can tell apologetics for what it is. They can say, this is apologetics. And so when these people say that they're not Stalinist and blah, 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 it's all hot air. You know, and when they come to power, if it's not the tankies that come to power, if it's these other people, and even when they don't have power, they're not being forthright and they're wavering. Is we really going to have a better society once they're in power? It's clear they're playing politics. You know, what is it that they really believe? What is it they really stand for when even in a situation where they could forthrightly condemn these people, they're not doing it? What are they really on about? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, this is why, like, I went online and I did some research and I found you guys. I found the Marxist Humanist Initiative. That's why I, I contacted you because um, when you were really out there, you know, publicly, you were you're inviting these ex tankies and engaging with the issue. And not only that, like I believe it's also important for it's not only, it's not just you condemn it, but also pr- propose an alternative. So if let's say a libertarian Marxist would confront a Stalinist and say, actually, you know, that those are lies, and here is an alternative. That is how the sort of growth of our movement will work and well you guys are obviously proposing marxist humanism and i that is also why i obviously decided to include the discussion of marxist humanism in the article um, because i believe it's important to show that not everybody thinks like stalinists and that there is an alternative which actually seeks to center humanity at the core of marxism as opposed to with stalinism which completely disregards it Laszlo, you've been referring to the movement. I assume you mean the student movement at your university because you've been saying our movement. And I assume that you mean by that the activists. I know you've been very active in agitating for uh, student housing and such. But if we call activism the movement, then we are excluding ideas and the very type of debate that you're trying to get going that would possibly defeat the tankies. And it seems to me it's not only dangerous because if the tankies took over after the revolution, they'd kill all of us, but it's very harmful to the movement right now in disorienting people, justifying authoritarianism and lack of democracy within our own organizations, and particularly in turning people off, because anybody in their right mind who's done the least bit of research is not going to be attracted to someone who's cheering for Stalin and wishing him happy birthday and all that. But the other thing is you say that when you research the Internet looking for some other kind of Marxist than tankyism, you found Marxist Humanist Initiative, and we're very glad you did. But there are a lot of other people who are uh, also different from the tankies. You've mentioned uh, mentioned in your article quite a bit about some certain anarchists, anarcho-syndicalists, uh, etc. So I wondered why you quoted two Marxist humanists, Andrew and me, in your article, and what in particular was your reason for discussing Marxist humanism in it. With the the movement, I do in, indeed refer to the let's say the socio-cultural space of Trinity, where you have the students who are activists and politically active, and sometimes that's the same as you know before I refer to the movement as the communist movement. And here there is definitely times when the activists are leftists, obviously. So there is there's nuance there. Uh, so it refers to too many things. And it is, as you said, it's very, very important to not lose sight of the bigger picture. So it's, this is just me basically being like, you know, liberalism doesn't work, the sort of liberal activism, because I believe that we need to have proper frameworks that analyze the the neoliberal system and capitalism in order to construct a movement that can actually make change. So it's very important for our movement, as I like to call it. It is, in fact, very important to have theories 
like proper Marxism, proper leftism, or anarchism, or whatever whatever that might be. I, I, if that's what you were asking, as far as why I decided to quote Marxist humanism, for one, I thought that the, the philosophical aspect was extremely interesting, and it was directly opposed to how Stalinists view Marxism. It's extremely clear with Marxist humanism, I think, with the works of Raya Dunayevska, that this specific sort of version, or I don't know how to call it, of Marxism is absolutely anti-authoritarian. And whereas other, you know, I, I could have quoted, obviously, like, some libertarian Marxists from Lipcom, or I could have quoted some anarchists. But you you were the ones who were actually proactively going out there and saying that Stalinism is an issue and we need to, to reject it. And I really like this idea where you you want to build a system that's most fitted for the human liberation of the human spirit that doesn't just view people, as I said, building blocks towards some abstract utilitarian goal. So I felt like if I include this, I will definitely suggest or show that there are alternatives to the people who are reading my article. You know, these Stalinists, if and when they get power, maybe before, they're going to they're going to kill us. They're going to put us in, you know, the gulag. They're going to do everything to us. They're not good people. We're not on the same side. It's not just that they have some misguided conceptions that we what we are dealing with is a political current that is not a leftist current that has captured space and recaptured it now on the left, but it's fundamentally reactionary. <laughs> you know, it's not part of the left. How do we get people who are not Stalinists to think differently about this phenomenon and see that there's like this alien tendency, alien current that's not part of the left that's within it instead of thinking that there's like Stalinism is part of the left. How, 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 how do we break through on this issue? To start a debate, that is very important. I also believe that non-Stalinists and just the movement in general needs to be much more open to debate. We need to come to terms with, with where we are. And somehow we, I think we, as I refer to leftists now, we need to realize the damage that is being done to the movement. So maybe the leftists don't know how big of an issue this is. They also maybe don't see it as a big danger because it's so far away. The revolution seems so far away. And maybe leftists also think that they can be comrades for now because the situation might look a bit hopeless. <laughs> but we need to realize that this is an issue and this can only be done through starting a debate, exposing the problems with Stalinism, you know, in our organizations. Just thinking back to when I was young and, you know, getting interested in Marx for the first time, there was nothing about the appeal of Marx to me um, when I was in my 20s that resembled this sort of Stalinist aesthetic, right? Like there was nothing about like being interested in like Marxist critique of capitalism and exploring what that meant for like movements that resembled apologizing for atrocities. I, you know, I didn't need, I didn't want to like carry around posters of like mass murders or berate and attack people for talk, you know, asking questions. It, like there was nothing about this aesthetic that you're describing that I've witnessed that there was, there was just none of that. You're like, that didn't appeal. That wasn't why I was interested in Marx. So when Andrew's, you know, saying that these are like different people, they're not part of the left, that, and, and we were asking before, like, why are people attracted to this? Is it possible that these are people that are just, their interest in these tanky politics just has no relationship to the, the sort of thing that you and I, or we in this podcast, are talking about and interested in when we're doing Marx? It's like, you know, even in like Stalinist Russia, right? There were people that they were just kind of like careerists and opportunists, and they were interested in pursuing things for their own personal gain and, and power. 
and maybe even there were people that were kind of uh, sadistic and enjoyed like inflicting pain and misery on other people. Um, and th- those people joined the party and rose high in the ranks because those were the kind of personalities that were attracted to that sort of philosophy. So is it possible that they're just like two very different types of people and they're being attracted to the movement or you know, what, you were, what you're calling the movement and for very different reasons? Yeah, yeah, it's certainly possible. I mean, one of the, let's say, an explanation, for example, which is rather than saying that there is something in common, we could say that the tankies have come into existence because the movement has started fetishizing itself, that we have the aesthetics, for example, and even non-Stalinists are guilty of this, but that the social effect, you know, I identify with a group on the left and my friends and, and my comrades. And that's also why there there is tankism. But as I argued before, the resurgence of tankism is also based in theory and not just these sort of effects, which, you know, you, because your your argumentation would mean that, that it's sort of like a, a copy which is lacking anything substantial, that Stalinists are a copy of the Marxist movement, which lack actual theory, and it is purely a superficial phenomena of people congregating. But that's not true, because it's also, as I said, it's also people who are are in the movement and who know what they're talking about insofar as they know the theory. Right. There's an interesting, to me, interesting uh, aspect of your uh, article, Laszlo, which has to do with the relationship between these pro-tanky organizations that already predated this new resurgence and then the entry of youth uh, into the picture. And you say that normally the veterans of any movement are challenged by the youth. What doesn't work is discarded. What works is carried forward. But that doesn't seem to be the case here. The leftist student scene is increasingly being taken over by the same ideas that dominate the far left in the past century. And you say that, in fact, the youth may be even more conservative, pro-Stalinist, and less nuanced than the veterans, which is incredibly uncommon for youth political organizations. Can you provide us with like one or two examples of what you're referring to? And, and just why is there this trend where the pro-Stalinist youth are even more extreme than the older generation? The, the explanation is that, you know, obviously older activists might have had more pragmatic belief because that they got money from the Soviet Union, let's say. But students, when they understand the theories, they can come to view it as almost religious, absolute, something like a, a second generation under a dictatorship, as you see in all the movies, right? That's how it works. So it's, it, it doesn't just become a way to advance certain causes or the interests of a party, the party, but it's also just the way to explain the world. It becomes part of the identity, right? That's what's very important here is that you, you put your hammer and sickle emoji in your Twitter bio, and then that's sort of what you communicate to the world. They don't understand that, you know, the, the world is maybe more complex than the dogmas of Marxism, Leninism. The examples that I mentioned earlier about things that were said, most of those were said to me by, by young people. For example, the Workers' Party of Ireland, if I remember correctly, maybe out of pragmatic reasons, but for example, they, did a, they weren't as aggressive in defending Lukashenko on social media, but the Workers' Party youth, for example, they did post uh, something about supporting Lukashenko. The, the, the youth, now disaffiliated youth organization, the Communist Party of Ireland, did wish Stalin happy birthday on Twitter. And obviously this is maybe due to the difference between, you know, the, maybe the main parties are more careful not to be too, too radical in that sense when collecting members so they maybe they act more as the soft soft version but it, it regardless in youth circles you have much more of this i will attack anyone who who doesn't agree with me and i'll push this viewpoint and i'll make the gulag jokes and i'll call people cia agents from that point on 
the the tank is also sort of reinforce each other in in that context so or or as in like you would have a flat out denial that there is any sort of genocide going on in china um and that flat out denial uh maybe the party line says something like we are going to um to we don't like we don't know what's happening or it's like soft denialism and then the the youth the tankies they go even further and they 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 find you know clear-cut propaganda which they they can shamelessly promote you know these this is very specific but there are these very big and long google google documents that's like a file sharing service, you know, specifically for MLs. And they have a list disproving all the so-called bourgeois lies of Stalinism, of China. And this document is not made by parties or organizations. It's made by young people who are involved in the Marxist uh, movement. So it has sort of taken on a life of its own, if I can say that. And where there is even more very clear belief in the lies and perversions of Marxism-Leninism. Well, Laszlo, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. I think this will make for a good episode. Yes, thank you, Laszlo. Thank you for having me. Hey, that's all the time we have for this episode of Radio Free Humanity. If you like the podcast, please do stop by MarxistHumanistInitiative.org to listen to other episodes and to read more about these issues and others. As always, if you like the podcast, we encourage you to write to us to comment and rate the podcast on the various podcast services. And of course, to share with all your friends and enemies.